Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Know and Walk, based on our study on the book of Ephesians. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. We're going to finish Ephesians today. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's pray over the word. Lord, we thank you for the way that you've already shown up in worship. We thank you for your presence. We ask that you would, Holy Spirit, that you would anoint this word. We ask that you would saturate this word. We ask that you would challenge us, convict us, stir us. We pray that we would walk out of here um, changed by the power of your spirit through the anointing of your written word. So help our minds to understand, help our hearts to be open, and we'll celebrate you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. John Bunyan um, wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. Have you heard of The Pilgrim's Progress? Written in 1678. It is still on the top 10 bestsellers list. It was um, second only to the King James Bible in his day. Uh, King Charles asked John Owen. John Owen was a Puritan theologian. He asked John Owen, he said, um, Why would you, a great scholar, want to hear an uneducated tinker preach? A tinker is a, uh, was a person who... They kind of fixed pots and pans and silverware. A, a tinker that, you know, that kind of stuff was expensive back in the day. So you, didn't, you broke your pot handle. You didn't just throw your pot away. There was a tinker who would come and fix it. They kind of, they were kind of dual rolled because if they couldn't fix it, they'd sell you another one. So they were like a salesman and a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, so the king asked John Owen, the great scholar, why would you want to go hear a tinker preach? And John Owen said, I'd willingly exchange my learning for that tinker's power of touching men's heart any day. John Piper wrote about John Bunyan. He said, he said that, um, that he never studied Greek. He never studied Hebrew. He had no theological degree, but he wrote 58 books. And the Pilgrim's Progress was the bestseller only to the Bible. In this early 17th century, King Charles in Parliament had a little bout uh, over power. Um, and King Charles gets... Um, removed from power and executed. Um, but in 1660, King Charles II um, comes to power, and he made not what, what they called nonconformity churches illegal. A nonconformity church was a church that wasn't a part of the Church of England, that wasn't an Anglican church. And so John Bunyan was a nonconformist, meaning that he was ordained by a church that was autonomous in their government. So he was ordained by a local church body that wasn't connected to the Anglican church, um, that just said, we, we ordain you as pastor. So there were Puritans that were nonconformists, there were Baptists that were nonconformists, anyone who's not a part of the Church of England was a nonconformist. And King Charles II suspected that the, the, the Civil War that broke out before um, with Parliament and King Charles I was driven by nonconformists talking about politics in their meetings, which 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 maybe had a part. And so he decided that all nonconformist churches were now going to become illegal. And so John Bunyan is arrested for preaching in a nonconformist church, and he's he's sentenced to um, three months in prison, as long as at the end of his imprisonment he would uh, never preach again. He spent 12 years in prison, um, as he waited for that uh, ruling to be overturned, and this is what he said. Um, 
this is old English, so forgive me. I'll kind of help you with it. He says, if nothing will do unless I make of my conscience a continual butchery and slaughter shop, unless putting out my own eyes, I commit me to the blind to lead me, as I doubt not is desired by some, I have determined the Almighty God being my help and shield yet to suffer. If frail life might continue so long, even till the moss shall grow on my eyebrows, rather than thus violate my faith and principles. What he, what he said was that um, you're asking me to make my conscience a butcher shop, to slaughter my conscience and quit preaching. I would rather suffer, and I'll stay in this prison until moss grows on my eyebrows, because I will not violate my conscience. And then he says another time, if you let me out today, I'll preach tomorrow. And so he stayed in prison for 12 years. Many have commented on his patience, conviction, endurance that he showed during his imprisonment. So in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, which he wrote in another imprisonment later, um, if you're not familiar with the story, uh, the story is like an allegory of the Christian life. The main character's name is Christian. The main character meets a man named Evangelist who tells him that he should um, leave the city of destruction where he currently lives and head towards Mount Zion. So the whole thing is this kind of story being told of a man named Christian. It's obviously an allegory. The, the man named Christian is also a tinker. And so you kind of get that John Bunyan is writing himself into the story. Um, but there's this scene in the book um, where where Christian has to face a monster named Apollyon, which is a playoff Revelation chapter 9. There's an angel of destruction, which in Greek means Apollyon, or is, is Apollyon. So Christian faces Apollyon, um, and after a long fight, defeats him with the sword of the Spirit, telling the monster that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And then Bunyan wrote that Christian couldn't retreat from Apollyon because he only had armor to cover his front. He wouldn't turn his back because in turning his back, he'd be exposed. And so Bunyan was playing off of our passage today, the armor of God passage that... Um, you know, you put on the, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. And, and what, what Bunyan was saying about that passage is that those, those gifts, the armor of God, they cover your front and you're intended to stand firm, to dig your heels in and resist the enemy and that the Christian doesn't retreat. And I think just thinking about it this week, I think Bunyan is almost writing from experience. Like for 12 years, he, no, I will not recant. No, I will not recant. I will not retreat. I'll stand firm in the conflict, in the trial. I'll dig my heels in. Um, and so that, that line has made it into commentaries preachers we talk about it a lot that idea that Bunyan wrote that the the armor covers the front and the Christians never meant to retreat so Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but rulers authorities cosmic powers and he calls us to stand so today we'll start in 6 10 and we're going to finish Ephesians so he says this finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might Put on the whole armor of God that you may be, you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, put on the best, the breastplate of righteousness. And as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, 
in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that my words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you all, so that you also may know how I am, how I am, and what am I, what I am doing. Tychus, the beloved brother and faithful minister, and the Lord will tell you everything. I've sent him to you this very purpose, that you may know we are, um, know how we are, and that you may be encouraged. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, with love incorruptible, with incorruptible love. Finally, he starts this with finally. Okay, so we just worked our little butts all the way through Ephesians, start to finish. Finally, be strong in the strength of his might. Be strong. Number one, he says to be strong in him. And I I wanted to remind you guys this morning that when we started Ephesians, we noted that the phrase in him is the repetitive phrase throughout all of Ephesians. And so he says, for instance, in verse uh, one, in chapter one, verse three, blessed be God. And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you are blessed with every spiritual places and with every spiritual blessing where in in Christ verse um, chapter one, verse seven. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Chapter one, verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. And then here he tells us that be strong in him, that you are secure, that you're, as we sang this morning, your victory, all of your spiritual strength and valor, all of your courage and all of your hope is found in him. And you are strong as long as you are, John 15, plugged into him. And so F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary says that you stand strong as long as you share in the power which is given to us in Christ. But also, as we mentioned this morning, this gospel is a gospel of brokenness, of people who are weak. You are weak and made strong in him when you perfectly lean on him, when you perfectly trust him. And so God is not calling you to an arrogant strength this morning. He's calling you to a profoundly humble strength that acknowledges that as I lean on the almighty, then I have strength. You don't do spiritual warfare from a place of arrogance. We're overcomers in him, in his blood, because of his victory. And here he makes a claim that's in direct contradiction with the naturalism of our day by saying that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with powers, um, principalities, powers of darkness in the heavenly places. So in our day, we've bought this thing that the only thing that exists is what you can touch and see, materialism, naturalism. But Paul says, no, I want you to remember that you wrestle not with flesh and blood, but every day you wrestle with powers, rulers, that there is a spiritual battle going on in the heavenly places that does have implications in the earth. And so don't think that all you're doing is wrestling with people. So John Bunyan, don't think that you're just interacting with people as you sit in jail, but you're actually interacting with rulers and powers and dominions. And there are demonic plans at play that are hindering your preaching, John Bunyan. So don't don't think that you're just wrestling against flesh and blood. You're wrestling with principalities and powers. There's a spiritual battle happening. 
So I wanted to mention to you this morning that John Paul Jackson, he, he wrote a really controversial book um, called Needless Casualties of War. The book was called Needless Casualties of War. And what, the, what happened, essentially, is um, John Paul Jackson, you know, he passed maybe two years ago now. Um, in the matter of a couple months, he had a bunch of people call him and say, we're under spiritual attack. There's multiple women in my church having miscarriages, my kids who love Jesus are all of a sudden rebellious, or uh, we started to pray, and as we prayed, then we started to be hit with sickness, and so John Paul Jackson took these multiple cases to prayer, and he started praying over them, and he said that he had a dream or a vision um, where God, what he interpreted the vision to mean essentially was this, this is kind of a big thought, but I wanted to lay it before you, was that the the, the churches, the people that were calling him were in arrogance waging warfare against principalities. The the dream was that the church in arrogance, not because God directed them to, but because they decided to, in arrogance they stepped it out and they started waging war against demons that cover cities and regions. And as they waged war against these demons that covered cities and regions, there were counterattacks. And the counterattacks is what they were experiencing. And what this the entire premise of John Paul's book is that, this is a big thought, and I, I just want to lay it before you, is that um, we are given authority to take dominion of the earth. We believe that from Genesis. Remember, we talked about that. It's our commission to take authority of the earth. And so John Paul Jackson says that you never are intimidated by demonic appearances or demonic oppression in the earth. We always rebuke because this is our realm of authority. But what he said was that... Um, principalities and rulers of the air, they're, they're operating in a dominion that's not our dominion. And so what he thought he was understanding is that they were trying to call down principalities and these demons, which scripture speaks of. And, and Ephesians 2 has already told us about principalities and powers of air. And so that idea is that, that, that just like any army, there are, there are heads in the demonic armies and those heads are over regions. And so what John Paul Jackson said is rather than Rather than focusing on our dominion and casting out devils on this level, they began to focus on a dominion that was not theirs, and they opened themselves up for counterattacks from higher levels of demons. That, a thought, that thought startles me at first. It put me on my heels. But as I, as I considered, tried to, you know, sometimes you just try to hear people out. As I tried to hear him out, um, he basically draws this idea from Daniel um, saying that he set himself to pray and to fast. Um, and 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 in, in Daniel chapter ten, and and as he fasts and prays, do you remember an angel comes to him after twenty one days? Most assume that it's Gabriel, and Gabriel says to him, "When you started to pray, the very hour that you set yourself to fast and pray, God commissioned me to come." But the prince of Persia wrestled with me for twenty one days, and twenty one days I wrestled with the prince of Persia, and I couldn't break through until Michael came and he broke through for me, and and he said, "When I leave here, I'll have to wrestle with the prince of." of Greece is what he says. And so again, Paul seems to be playing with Daniel chapter 10, where you get this idea that there are powers that dwell over regions. Um, and, and, and then, and then John Paul Jackson quotes Jude one nine and Jude one nine says this, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. And so 
Michael, according to Jude, Michael doesn't speak arrogantly to the enemy, um, to Satan, but he says, the Lord rebuke you. And, and Daniel waged warfare. This is the entire point. Daniel was waging spiritual warfare as he repented, as he fasted, and as he made pleas to God. As he repented, fasted, and pleaded with the Lord, the Lord was releasing angelic beings that do have authority and dominion in the heavenly realm to contend. And so, I'm not making any huge claim right now. All, all I'm saying is that I think you should at least hear that warning before you make your entire spiritual life about calling down principalities over regions. I don't think you should do that lightly. If what Paul is saying is true, that we wrestle with the demonic. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but we are wrestling with principalities and powers. I think you would be wise to not just jump in and say, I'm going to contend with the top demons um, I don't think you should do that alone. I think you should at least talk with some other believers. I think you should at least be cautious. Uh, do you guys kind of hear what I'm saying? I'm not making a, a, a dogmatic claim other than I'm suggesting that you consider that thought. But before you set out to make your Christian life about casting down big powers, all that to say is that Paul says we do wrestle with these things. We do wrestle with spiritual battles and spiritual fights. And so to reemphasize and to be fair to John Paul Jackson's book, he's not saying that you should ever be fearful of the demonic. He's not saying that if in prayer ministry today, if someone manifests a demon, that we should be scared. That's not the point, because the demonic in our realm, we have authority over. What he's saying is that you should be cautious with trying to cast out the demonic in a realm that you don't have authority over, is, is his point. So again, I'm just saying that, I'm just laying that before you that you should consider. So Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, rulers of the air. And then he calls you, um, he calls this current age the evil day. He says that you should stand in the evil day. So there's a coming day when God will silence the voice of the accuser. He will eradicate the earth of demonic influence. And we're getting closer to that day. This kingdom that we serve, this kingdom that we celebrate, this new dominion in which Jesus is the head, it is breaking in. It is now here. It is coming in power. Yet Paul still calls this day the evil day. And so the current kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, is colliding with this kingdom for which we live for. And the the evil day is today in which we combat, we collide with this current kingdom of darkness. And Paul says he gives you no incredible strategy. He doesn't give you four points to stand in the evil day. He just tells you to stand. You just resist. You just don't give up ground. You dig your heels in and you stand in this evil day. This evil day. You still have trials. You still have battles to fight. We don't lay down to the schemes of the enemy personally. So what does it mean to stand in the evil day? It means that personally we fight for holiness, personal holiness. We don't submit ourselves to sin. We don't submit ourselves to our culture's agenda, um, whether it has to do with sexuality, whether it has to do with the way that we should handle our money, whether it has to do the way, with the way we should treat our spouses. We don't submit to that agenda. We serve a new kingdom. In our kingdom, every person is valuable. In our kingdom, righteousness reigns. In our kingdom, the name of Jesus is celebrated. 
celebrated and shouted from every mountaintop. So no, we don't submit to the idea that we shouldn't talk about Jesus in public because our kingdom is, is circles itself around this person, Jesus. But in that, we're colliding, clashing constantly. There's friction between our kingdom and the kingdom of this world. But we stand. So personally, no, we do not submit to the plans of the enemy to entice us back into the kingdom of darkness. And corporately, no, we do not submit ourselves to the plans of the enemy to entice us back into darkness. We stand firmly on the word of God. We cling to the principles that scripture gives us. He says, stand in the evil day. And the last thing I wanted to say about that point is that it also means that we don't quit. Standing, it's interesting, remember we talked about Watchman Nee's book, it's interesting that, that, that he tells us that we are seated in the heavenly places in Ephesians 2. We sit down with Christ, we rest perfectly in God. Yet in our interaction with the enemy, we stand, we use our energy to dig our heels in and we stand and we don't quit standing. We stand until the evil day is over. We dig our heels in and resist until the coming of our Lord. That's why we, we wait for, we long for the coming of Jesus. Don't quit. You lean into his strength and stand. And then he gets into the put on. So I'm going to just hash through this that kind of systematically here. He says that we put on the armor of God. Now, some scholars and theologians suggest, remember that Paul's in prison, most likely in Rome. And so is Paul... Is Paul chained to a Roman guard? Is he sitting in front of a Roman guard? Is he going to give us the armor of God as he's watching a man standing in full armor? Maybe so. It's possible that that's happening. But but Paul certainly plays with ideas that we see all throughout the Scripture. So, for instance, in Isaiah 59.17, it reads of of Messiah, that he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And so it's not not perfectly. I don't think you can perfectly claim that he's watching a Roman soldier. He's definitely playing with ideas from Isaiah. He's playing with ideas from a few other places. So the first thing he says is that, that we should fasten the belt of truth. Somebody say, belt of truth. And I want, I want you to hear me say this. Truth holds our position together. There's no room, there's no place for deceit in the kingdom of God. False religions that plague our land. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, these, these, these systems hide stuff. These systems deceive. These systems that you can't learn everything until you go through for a while. Not Christianity. Christianity claims truth and, and encourages you to research, to study. If this gospel is true, then it's true. And there's no, nothing to hide. There's nothing to cover. We live in the light. Remember, walk in light, he told us. And so this gospel is held together in truth. We are a people of truth. We have nothing to hide. There's no secret Pass it. You, you, you don't do this thing long enough and then you learn our secrets. We don't have secrets. Everything's out in the open. We, we, we have no, deception has no place. There's no attempt to deceive. We don't try to deceive people into Christianity. We argue truth, logic, reason. We argue for the historical, the historicity of the gospel, the historical support. Our, our apologetic is, is truthfulness, is reason. We appeal to consciences by the power of the Holy Spirit. Never deceive. I'm not trying to trick anyone into the kingdom. I'm trying to lay out the truth. So we don't play intellectual tricks. We don't discourage our kids from research. We don't discourage dialogue. We welcome dialogue. If it's true, then it's true. Then he tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
Now, ultimately, we're protected by the, the righteousness of Christ. Ultimately, we are clothed in his perfect righteousness. And so the best way to protect our inner man is to throw ourselves into the righteousness of Christ. But most commentators say that he is also encouraging us to grow in our own personal righteousness. Remember that distinction of positional positional righteousness. So when I confess Christ, I am clothed in his perfection. That doesn't mean that all of my junk is worked out yet. I still got junk to work out. So positional righteousness, when I say yes to Jesus, I'm growing in personal righteousness, working out my junk as I walk with Christ. And, and as I thought about this this week, I think he's telling us to guard your from temptation. I think he's telling us to um, prioritize holiness, prioritize righteousness. And then as you pursue righteousness, you are guarding your inner man. Why does righteousness guard my inner man? Because deception, the, the plan of the enemy to tempt me is to drag me back into the kingdom of darkness or to taint my spiritual person. And so Hear me, this is a big thought, but I want you to hear it. And maybe it doesn't capture the picture of this text perfectly, but I think it's true, and I think there is some implication here. Every time God tells you, thou shall not, what is he saying? He's saying, thou shall not, because that's going to ruin you. So every thou shall not is a, I love you. Don't stick the fork in the light socket. Every, do you guys understand what I'm saying? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Why? Because adultery is going to ruin your marriage. Adultery is going to ruin you. Sex is a spiritual thing. And that when you commit a sexual act with someone outside of your marriage, you're setting yourself up for failure. And so if God's thou shalt nots are also, I love you, don't do that, that's dumb, then, then pursuing righteousness is actually protecting your heart. So him telling you to pursue righteousness is actually putting on a breastplate that would, in the same way that when you have a young daughter, and I got three of those little suckers, so when I have a young daughter, um, I'm not going to quickly let those girls date, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and you're wise with how you let that, that dating thing happen. You're intentional about what you set up when you got a herd full of little girls. They're cute too, that's a problem. Um, in the same sense, so, so I try to guard my daughter's hearts. In the same sense, God has guarded your heart because of his great love for you. He has given us commandments and he's taught us righteousness. And as you pursue righteousness, you are protecting your own heart. I know that's a big thought, but it's because God is a God of perfect love. He calls himself father for a reason. And until you throw yourself at trying to understand who father God is and what he means by calling himself father and what Jesus means by praying to him as Abba, until you really try to understand agape love and what is agape love the new testament won't make sense to you and so the pursue righteousness and pursue holiness it's protection man that's protection of my heart why don't i want my kids to look at pornography because i don't want their hearts to go there i want them to be protected and shielded from that put on the breastplate of righteousness you should be a people of righteousness because in pursuing righteousness we're protecting our inner man we should raise our kids in holiness because we don't want satan to chew them up and spit them out so standards are there for protection and because God loves us. Pursue righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness that will guard your heart. Then he says to put on uh, the shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
What does this mean? I think it means that because of the gospel, he told us this in chapter 2, because of the gospel, you now have peace with God. You were once a stranger to the family of God, but because of the gospel, you have been grafted in. You were once an enemy of God, but because of the blood that was shed from Calvary, you are now adopted into his family. And so when Romans 8 says that you are no longer children of slavery, children of fear, but you are now adopted in, by which you cry, Abba, that fear that Romans 8 is speaking, of is the fear of the wrath of God, that you are no longer gripped by the fear of the wrath of God because God has lavished, Ephesians 1, his perfect love and grace and mercy on you. So you have peace with God and that peace with God creates for you a, in an allegorical sense, shoe that allows you to walk into any situation. That peace with God liberates you to walk and to pursue and follow God. That peace with God, if you will really try to get the revelation of what peace for God means, you will take risk. You will walk in faith. Because if I am taking risk and trying to walk in faith, what do I have to be scared of? I've got peace with God. What is death to a person who knows God and knows him intimately? We don't fear sickness. We don't fear trial. We don't fear oppression. We walk in confidence. We have shoes of readiness, ready to walk in any situation because we have perfect peace with the God of all creation. And when he speaks, things shake and break. And when he tells the seas to sit down, it doesn't matter if I'm sinking in them. They're going to sit down. Peace with that kind of God. So you wake up every day and you put on the breastplate of righteousness. I pursue righteousness. And in doing so, I'm preparing myself for spiritual warfare. I put on, I, in a proverbial sense, I put on my shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. And I am not in, intimidated by any situation because I remind myself that I know God. Then he says, take up your shield of faith. And now this, this, this Greek word for shield is not the word for like, um, the, the little round shield that you hold, but this is the full body shield, the, the full thing. And he says that as you pick up the shield of faith, you'll be able to distinguish the darts of the enemy, the fiery darts of the enemy. So he's using the word for, um, you know, in movies like the arrow that's dipped in some kind of flammable substance and then it's shot at you. I don't want to get shot with the arrow. I don't want to get shot with the arrow that's on fire either. I think that sounds bad. Um, so he says that the enemy is shooting fiery darts at you, but as you pick up your shield of faith, they are extinguished. Think that through. What are the implications of that thought? I think, I think, I think when we start talking about, um, extinguishing the enemy's plans with faith, I think fear comes up right away. Anxiety comes up right away. I think faith extinguishing the the strategies of the enemy that he throws at me just to be vulnerable for a minute. When I feel like I'm struggling and wrestling spiritually, it's usually anxiety. It's usually what if things are going to go bad. I'm not going to be, I'm going to fail. I am going to fail. And I'm starting to have these thoughts that attack me, literally attack my mind. But as I pick up my shield of faith and as I settle my resolve, I remember Jesus saying things like this. Don't worry about tomorrow. It's going to worry about itself. I remember Jesus saying, I have all the hairs of your head counted. I remember Jesus saying, think of the birds of the air and how they're cared for. How much more do you mean to God than birds of the air? If the birds don't live in fear and anxiety, why would you live in fear and anxiety? And then I think of Jesus saying that consider the lilies in the field. 
They're clothed in splendor. Not even Solomon, all of his splendor is clothed like the lilies of the field. Do the lilies live in anxiety? No, they don't live in anxiety. They live in perfect peace because God takes care of them. And as I start to stir up my faith, and I remember, no, Jesus said he takes care of the sparrow. Not a sparrow falls that he doesn't see. If he takes care of the sparrow, he takes care of me. And so as the accusations fly, I say, no, I pick up the faith. No, I'm picking up my faith. No, I do not believe that everything's going to crumble. No, I do not believe that my life's going to be a failure. No, I do not believe that I have to live insecure and with doubt. No, I believe that Jesus is a is the perfect Savior, that He has grafted me into the family of God, and He's a good Father who will see me through to the finish. And even if I crumble, it'll be for His glory. Be for His glory. And so when the enemy whispers, you'll lose your house, you'll die to the sickness, you're a coward. My response in faith is, no, God loves me, man. He loves me so much that Romans 8 says he didn't even spare his own son. How much more will he give us all things? And I like to remind myself of that, that psalm, you know, that even darkness is light to him. What is darkness to the God of light? Even the seasons that feel crazy and mucky, this light to him. How do you pick up the shield of faith? You remind yourself, I belong to him. And you believe it. That's the faith that extinguishes the arrows of the enemy. Then he says, you put on the helmet of salvation. And I think they're getting, I think here we're talking about our mind, that you're given the mind of Christ. And that the enemy does try to play games with our thinking, that there are strongholds as we allow our mind to go down paths that are not God honoring. There, there, we, we have a, 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 we're prone to believe lies. And as we believe these lies, we allow our perspective to get skewed and we become bitter. We start to view things through a lens of pity and doubt. But Paul says that you, you put on the helmet of salvation. You, you practice renewing your mind to the word of God. You practice not being conformed to the patterns of this world, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, but being renewed in, but by the renewing of your mind. You, you, how do you put on the helmet of salvation? You store that scripture in your brain. And when lies come, you spit it out. I can remember being a young man and trying to live this and having lustful thoughts and saying with Job in chapter chapter 31, saying, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a young woman. I can remember working at Publix, 18 years old, and saying that to the guys I worked with. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully. You store that stuff. You put the word of God in your brain. And by putting the word of God in my brain, I create patterns that believe truth. And I and I create literally a helmet that makes the the... The lies of the enemy just bounce off. When they try to penetrate my thinking, they just fall. As I grow in the mind of Christ, as I grow. And that's why uh, we're a spirit-filled church. We're a spirit-filled church because we're a Bible-believing church. We believe that every believer should have the Word of God. I think you should spend time in the Word every single day. Hear me say that. If you don't have time in the Bible every day, Figure it out. Make time to get time in the Bible every day. I do a basic year-long plan. I'm not not saying you got to read 12 chapters a day. That wears me out too. But I do a basic year-long plan. Work through the Bible every year. Done it for years. Um, get you get you a plan. Start storing stuff. When you feel God speak to you on a scripture, you memorize it. It don't take that long. Your brain is much more powerful than you think. Start memorizing that stuff because the enemy will come. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle with these powers. And they do try to infiltrate your thinking. But if you would 
if you would, in the sense, put on the word of God, if you would put that helmet on, you would begin to walk in victory that, that you haven't known yet. The word of God is a powerful tool that we as Pentecostals sometimes haven't used enough. Use it, man. We're going to be a Bible-believing church, a Bible-reading church, Bible-studying church. Somebody say, hey, preach that. So as you put on the helmet of salvation, I'm living as if I'm loved and my position in God is sure. I'm reminding myself that, that God has lavished his perfect love upon me in Ephesians 1. I'm living as if I'm blessed in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1. I'm reminding that I'm currently seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And now the knowing that we talked about for the first three chapters of Ephesians is now colliding with the walking because I have to know that I'm seated in heavenly places, know that I have perfect peace with God to walk and live in the full victory that Christ died us to live in. And so you can't live in it until you know it. And so you got to study and read and pray. Meditate on the word of God. Then he says, pick up the sword of the spirit. Somebody say sword. We like swords. Don't give my kids nothing. They'd be hitting you with it real quick. So Jesus in his wilderness temptation, he appeals to the scriptures. Three times appeals to the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 4 calls the Logos of God, the, the Word of God. He says it's sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intention of our heart, that the Word of God is sharp, it pierces. Revelation tells us that when Jesus comes back, that he'll return with a sword in his mouth. And Martin Luther, in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress of, is Our God, he says that with one word of God's mouth, Satan will be brought to destruction. Again, you oppose the enemy daily through digesting the truth of God's words and regurgitating them at our enemy. You speak them at the enemy. You allow them to come out of your mouth, to pass through your lips, and you vocalize the word of God. And through vocalizing the word of God, you are waging warfare with the demonic. Resting in his perfect word. Digesting the God breathe. Realize that you need to remind yourself of this. This is no ordinary book. And these are not just words on a page. But this is Holy Spirit inspired. These are the words of God. And as I speak these words of God, I am forming and shaping and waging war. Pick up the sword of the Spirit and wage war against the enemy. We literally hurl the truths of Scripture at the enemy, reminding him of our total victory of a Christ. And what Colossians says, that, that the enemy was um, publicly humiliated at Christ's triumphant victory. And I want to close with this. Then he tells us to pray. In the spirit, we're to engage in prayer at a level beyond our soul and mind. Pray in the spirit. Does he have Romans 8 in mind where he says that we um, pray with utterances that are too deep in words? Does he have the idea of praying in the spirit in mind? Remember when he says in Corinthians that he sings in his natural mind and then he, he sings in the spirit and he prays in his natural mind and then he prays in the spirit. And so he's, he's, he's talking about tongues in that sense, praying in tongues. So when he says pray in the spirit, does he have this idea in mind? of praying in tongues? Maybe so. Either way, he's calling you to pray at a deeper place. He's calling you to... Uh, to, to do the Ian Bounds stuff, to, to pray beyond, to pray deeper. He's calling you to not live a shallow prayer life that just checks your list and walks away, but to really stop and pray, to really engage in prayer, to really get on the ground and cry. You pray in the spirit beyond your natural. You, you push yourself into prayer. 
with all supplication at all times, continually make requests of God to ask. It's part of your commission and and we need to stir this thing up. It's part of your commission to be a praying people. It's part of your commission to pray, to request, to make petitions of God, to release the kingdom into the earth in new ways. It's part of our calling. I want to, I want us to be praying daily that people would come to know the beauty and the majesty of Jesus on this island. Every day I'm praying that people meet Jesus on this island. You, you're called to pray. Pray for the saints. Pray for one another. And, and I want to camp on this idea for a second. Then he says, pray for me. So the spiritual giant, right? Paul, the like intellectual giant, no doubt. Even modern scholars will say that he is the intellectual giant of his day. This intellectual giant. This man who has suffered beyond suffering. He has suffered, given his life for the gospel. He tells his little congregations that he's evangelized. He says, pray for me. You pray for me. Again, there's no arrogance in Christianity. When the man of God asks for prayer, how, how silly is it for us to buy this line that to ask for prayer is to admit some kind of weakness? And how many times have you not come to the altar when you knew something was going on in your life because you didn't want people to think you're weak? And here Paul says, pray for me, pray for me. That's arrogance. And it's arrogance that debilitates you. Sometimes your freedom is, is when, when you would ask some believers, you pray for me. I'm feeling weak right now. Pray for me. I loved what Don shared with us as he was in the hospital sick, saying that physically I was so tired that I couldn't pray. And it, it helped to know that other believers were covering me in prayer. Don't, don't be so arrogant as to think that you are the hyper-spiritual one, the elite one who never needs prayer. That is a joke. Joke. I... Man, if, if you've learned anything about me over the last five or six months, let's, let's be real for a second. I'm going to be real, okay? There are seasons where I need you to cover me in prayer. There are times where I feel like I'm walking through some fights. There are times where I'm struggling. I, I, I will not allow that arrogance to grip me. So I'm giving you permission. If you need prayer, get yourself in the altar. The, the altar is not a place for the weak. It's a place for the Christian. Paul says, pray for me. He's not above needing prayer and neither are you. Paul's not above needing prayer and neither are you. If you think you're above it, you've got to acknowledge it's a lie, man. It's a trap. And I like this idea. Paul's saying, I'm, pray that I would have boldness. I think he's saying, I'm in the line of fire, man. I'm in the thick of it. I'm, I'm preaching the gospel in places where people are opposing me constantly. Pray that I'll have boldness. Pray, cover me in the line of fire. That idea of warfare. So in conclusion, this is kind of a big thought, but I think the entirety of what Paul just said is that you wage spiritual warfare through resting in God's love. For the majority of that stuff, it's you engage, you stand as you stand in the strength of his might. You stand as you put on the helmet of salvation and you, rem- you remind yourself of what he's done for you. You pick up faith, and, and, and the, the biggest place of picking up faith in my life is standing against the condemnation, the accusation of the enemy, and believing God's word. I'm, I'm Picking up faith is about me really believing and resting in what Jesus did for me on Calvary. Picking up faith is about me, yes, acknowledging that I'm broken, that I've fallen, that I've sinned, but that acknowledging with, with all of the courage that I can muster that what Jesus did was for me. That I am in Christ. And I think that's what he's saying from Ephesians 2. You're seated in 
in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And then on the flip side, back side of the epistle saying, now you, you wage you, war not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual, spiritual places, with, with principalities and power. I think he's saying that you wage war by being seated in Christ, believing in his love, trusting his love, pursuing first his righteousness, and then, yes, growing in righteousness and holiness. But it's, but it's growing in relationship with God. And so, if you are losing in spiritual warfare, I think the best thing we could say is cast yourself upon the love and grace of God. Hide yourself in Him. What did we sing this morning? This is how I fight my battles. What are we talking about? We fight our battles through communion, through hiding ourselves in God's presence, hiding ourselves in God's strength. So what I want to do is go ahead and stand to your feet. I just want to pray. I want to pray that we would have a fresh revelation of God's love, that you would have a fresh revelation of what God's done for you, that you would begin to really walk and live in the victory that Jesus um, established for us. As I pray, if um, ministers, if you guys want to go ahead and come forward. So, Lord, we thank you for the last 10 weeks that you've taken us through Ephesians. We, ta- we thank you that you've given us the time to think through the fact that we are blessed in, with every spiritual blessing, that we are perfectly in Christ and that in Christ there is nothing that you've withheld from us. You've reminded us of Jesus' words, that peace he's given to us. And that he doesn't give as the world gives. Lord, help us to encounter your truth this week. Wash us with the water of your word. Wash us with the truth of this gospel. That we're accepted because of Jesus. We love you. We love you. Somebody say that with me. We love you this morning. We love you this morning, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly and visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.